freedom song. I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go. Black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. And welcome to episode 26 of the Ferguson Response Network podcast. Woo! A weekly podcast, actually not weekly anymore, but a podcast devoted to supporting people working to create a lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. I'm joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Uh, nothing much. Just finishing up the uh, hope anniversary, So it should be out um, today. Oh, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And it's been a year since we've been doing this show together as well, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Went by quickly. Yeah, but it's been a good year, though. It has. I I was looking through the shows and I was like, man, we had some really amazing conversations and had some really like just nuanced and cool people on. Um, If you aren't familiar with Ricky, he's a Los Angeles native, U.S. Navy veteran and Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement, host of the Americans United Again podcast and co-host of both the AUA Hope podcast and Social Justice Bullies podcast. And he's been with me since episode two, I think, the show and been here every episode so i'm very grateful um for him to be here and we also have some other guests here we have absurdist words how you doing today i'm very well thank you so good to have you um and if you're unfamiliar absurdist words is a twitter educator slash advocate uh, activist developer of the how to discuss race with black people faq advocate of rational discourse and information architect which I love all of those things. That FAQ series is amazing, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And thank you so much for being here. And we also have very white guy. Hello. How are you? Very white. Very white indeed. He's uh, one half of the International John podcast, and uh, as he says, he's here to stand accountable for all of whiteness in t- 2015. So yeah, here he is. A lot of nonsense. <laughs> and then we thank you for being here as well. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to jump into, just uh, we're going to do a couple of bits of news, and then we're going to really just uh, have a, a really informal convo about our thoughts on this year and some highlights for each of us and kind of talk through what worked, what didn't, and and, uh, and all of that good stuff. Um so I guess we'd be remiss to not talk about Tamir Rice and, and the non-indictment. I guess we can go around the horn and just talk a little bit about what you have all noticed in the aftermath of this and, and any thoughts you might want to share. Um, uh, Absurdist words, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a rough, <laughs> rough couple of days. Um, you know, it's been, it's very, they've definitely been difficult um, dealing with the, the non-reaction I think of a lot of the country to Tamir Rice, um, and you know, it, for a long time, um, I think I conceived of Tamir Rice as being um, the victim that was sort of unassailable. Um, you know, you have video, you have a kid who's prepubescent, um, all of these things, and it seems sort of like the situation where um, 
where there was there was enough enough obviousness that there would be no question, um, and yet there's still so much of the country that that is not at all woke, um, that isn't at all you know recognizing of just how um, incredibly incredibly tragic it is, as well as you know the effect it has of basically the country saying you know this 12 year old deserves to die sorry that's just business um so you know a lot of the week has been has been you know talking with people um through their frustrations you know taking you know taking stuff from trolls uh, who are out there every five minutes you know sort of you know proposing every lie possible um and it's just been it's been, it's been emotionally draining i literally had to, to spend yesterday um just doing a, a day of self-care um just to not get bound down by the by the you know the, the sadness and the rage and the anger and the despair. Yeah, so. I hear you on all of that. I mean, I think I've been I um I led a black um, only healing space an online space on Wednesday night, um, just kind of getting some folks together. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, so it's a bunch of Unitarian Universalists. I got together. And we, you know, we had some readings and some music, and mostly just had open discussion. And I think that was the overlying kind of the anger and the rage was what I heard most. And I think that a lot of us were in just this general mindset of not being able to really like even share that with the general world. And that becomes another, you know, piece that we have to hold, which is that our rage doesn't even really have a a compartment in, in this supremacist world. And it fucking sucks that we don't even get that space to, to feel the way that we just, you know, rightfully feel. Um, very white guy. What 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 are your thoughts? What have you seen and kind of just about just in the aftermath? I think it's been, you know, there's one thing we can always, you know, go into the details of the case and, and the travesty that is McGinty actually saying, I never thought there should have been charges filed. So therefore, surprise, the grand jury didn't file charges, you know, and, and all that go along with that and his, you know, just evilness, generally speaking. But um what are your thoughts? I, you know, I'll just I'm, I'm here. And I think it would be a microcosm of why I'm here today. Um, really, more for white folk. Just listen, you know. Especially, you know, at the at the moment of the non-indictment, the number and volume of of white people across the spectrum I saw sharing opinions and thoughts, and you know, you called it Leslie the well actually of Twitter. Oh, I think and, you know, Sirs Rose, I saw you dealing with a bunch of that shit too, and it just, I, you know, I can't. You know, when you hear as a white person, like just listen and lift up and amplify the voices of black folk and just listen, you know, in those moments more so than any, uh, just at any time you open your mouth, it's like, no matter what words come out of your mouth, it's, it's on top of or over, uh, frequently a person of color who's got, you know, some, like you guys both all just said, serious, uh, pain surrounding this. Um, so I'm just going to listen a lot. Uh, and you know, like I said, I'll, I'll be here and accountable for, uh, all of our, our nonsense this year as white people. I'll, I'll, I'll be that person today. Yeah, I think that like the gymnastics that has been uh, that's be, that gets done in these in the aftermath of these non indictments to you know justify what happened is always you know amazing to me and the hypocrisy that is inherent in those conversations because they end up being very um, you know observational and you know there's no emotion attached to them and I also think that it's just you know it's it's such a double standard in terms of what the expectation is of 
black life and, and the worth therein, uh, where we see, you know, a grown man called the affluenza teen who actually killed people and is still not in jail. Yet I have people on my timeline actually blaming a 12 year old for his own death in two seconds by the police. It's just, it doesn't even make common sense, quite frankly. Ricky, what you got? Um, you know what? This one was particularly tough for me because, um, I equate this and John Crawford because I like, honestly, I like guns. Guns are cool. I've raised, I've, I was raised in a country where, where, where gun violence is fucking glorified. High probability I'm going to like guns as a black kid. <laughs> like, let's just be honest about this. Or any kid. Like, quite frankly, like just being an American is like, I heard a lot of people, not to interrupt you, but just to make this one point, talking about that Christmas story movie um, that's set in Cleveland about this little white kid that wants a Red Ryder BB gun that looks exactly like a rifle in, in that movie. It's like class. It gets shown for 24 hours every Christmas and it's a part of Americana. Yet we're surprised that a little boy would be playing with an, in an open carry state, by the way, with a, a BB gun in a park. It's just ridiculous. Go ahead there, Ricky. No. And it's, it's crazy because like the things, the thing that usually keeps me from, you know, being as upset or the way I deal with and process this kind of stuff is that I just focus on the details and I just kind of play play with the situation in my mind. Hmm. And I realized that had Tarim, had his his own mother done the same thing, same thing, she'd be in jail. Hmm. I mean, if she, if she had shot him or if she had, what do you mean by the same she, thing? She, if she had been there with the gun? If she had been there with the gun, mm. had she pulled the trigger, had his own parent pulled the trigger, she would be in jail. I yes, mean, truthfully, any right. other person besides a police officer would probably be in jail. Yeah. I mean, uh, or a white male who, who's, yeah, uh, who, was ju- who was justifiably scared for their life. Exactly. Not, mm. But it's just, I, I don't know. It, it bothered me because he sat there and told the, he told the world in the, in, on national TV that he didn't want to do his job. I don't second guess cops. Motherfucker, your job is a your job is a you're a prosecutor. What the fuck? That's your job is to second guess whoever you're supposed to be prosecuting. Mm. Like what come on, son. <laughs> okay, so do you want to hold your, your uh resignation protest uh you know conference now or do you want to hold this later so that you have something to write it up? Mm. What you're telling what you're telling people on national TV is that it is okay for you to not want to do your job because you want to protect the police officer. Now, if you give it to a jury and they fucking they botch it, that's not your responsibility. Right. Like you can at least say that you did the right thing. No, you don't want to do your job. Okay. Fuck you. Is is all you can say. Absolutely. Well, grand jury botching things is is almost never the case. I mean, because exactly. the way that the way that grand juries work is that they only hear what the prosecution wants them to hear. It's exactly. not about the defense doesn't get to say anything. The defendant doesn't have to get to be able to testify. They only hear what the prosecutor wants them to hear. And so, really, the only reasons that a grand jury doesn't indict is one is because the prosecutor has absolutely no arguable case whatsoever, or two, because the prosecutor tried not to indict. So that's it. That's those are the only reasons. That's, yep. that's the way the grand jury is set up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Absolutely. It's a rubber stamping situation really going on. It's meant to weed out like egregious situations where a prosecutor should never be prosecuting somebody, not for a prosecutor that doesn't want to prosecute someone. And my thing is this, you know, if, if that was how McGinty feel, felt, why hide behind the grand jury? Then just say you're not going to fucking prosecute. And don't put this family in this, uh, you know, stasis of grief for over a year. For what purpose? You know, it, it's just, it just shows continual lack of respect for black people and, and, and grief and, and dealing with trauma because he was perfectly fine doing this, you know, complete charade of song and dance, vilifying this family and Samaria Rice in the, in the media to lawyers, to anybody that would listen to him. It, it just, the whole thing is just so disgusting. It's, it's beyond. Um, so the other thing I wanted to just touch on before we jumped into the, the general topic was Black Christmas. And I don't know if you guys had seen too much about it or, or had been, I'm Ricky, I'm sure you were because there was a lot of California action going on there. Um, what were your guys' thoughts on it and like how did you find out about it and all of that kind of stuff? Uh, Ricky, we'll start with you. Um, honestly, I just, I, I kept seeing things on Facebook and then, you know, one thing, I, next thing I hear, I'm like, wait. Shut the 405 down, <laughs> like round of a fucking applause. Like mm. that, that takes that takes a, a degree of fortitude that is admirable, um, and it's done for a good cause. Like you can't be mad at it. Um, it. You know, some people, some people don't have, some people don't have it in them to do that. But it's it's always it's always amazing to see the people who do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I thought it was a beautiful action in a couple of different ways. One, you know, the intentionality behind it and just, you know, focusing on this no more business as usual aspect on the biggest travel day of the year, on, you know, one of the biggest commerce days, days of the year. I thought it was really smart and strategic and also, um, you know, very coordinated. You know, we had six cities all over the entire country, Midwest, South, uh, East Coast. It was very you know, together and, um, purposeful and it was really beautiful to see. Um, I'm sort of sports. What about you? What were your thoughts seeing all of that stuff go down? Um, it's just been, I mean, uh, it's been, it's been tough. Um, uh, you have to give me a second. No problem. Drew, we'll go over to you with, we're talking about Black Christmas. Oh, and how I heard about it, and I just uh, on Twitter, and uh, I wasn't necessarily involved. Uh, I, I saw the Mall of America actions, and uh, you were in uh, Minneapolis, so we we had some contacts with folks. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say doing things, but uh, just observing and, and amplifying. And um, you know, I think it was terrific, and I, I'm glad to see uh, actions like that repeating every year, and I think getting bigger. Um, and I think it was. Uh, especially the Mall of America action, uh, a good show, and that they kind of had two different things going on and diverted and went to the airport like a red herring. Um, I like seeing that. I think it was terrific. Yeah, I thought it was just, like I said, just the, the coordination piece of it I thought was really smart and um, 
I like I love seeing actions like that because I think a lot of times people think that direct action is like messy or not planned out well or not thought about when in reality, no matter what it looks like on the front end or on the back end on the front, like there's a lot of work that goes into mm. um, planning any action, much less coordinating six separate cities to shut down major um, transportation hubs in all of those cities at the same time. It's really a lot, a lot, a lot of work coordination. And, and let me just tell you this, to keep it secret for however long they had to in terms of their planning structure, that's incredibly, incredibly hard surveilled, you know, to the nth degree, like the surveillance is so significant. It's like all of our phones are being listened to. All of our communications are being listened to. And it's a lot of work that we goes into this. I mean, when we go into plan actions, like everybody has to leave their phones and computers out of the house so that there's no possibility of anybody listening in. That's the level that we have been forced to, to go to to ensure um, security when we're planning actions. So I think that's amazing. And just thinking of all those people um, sitting in a room, I'll read a little bit from the um, BLM statement because these were all Black Lives Matter chapters uh, in Minneapolis, Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, two days ago, a Texas grand jury announced their decision of no indictment in the death of Sandra Bland. This young, vibrant black woman died in police custody after a racially motivated stop, a brutal arrest, wrongful bail hearing, and unlawful detention. We know Sandra Bland could have been any of us. So on December 23rd, one of the busiest days of the holiday season. Black communities across the United States are taking brave actions to impede the flow of goods and commerce with peaceful protest to call for an immediate overhaul of the justice system, both locally and nationally, that will demand accountability for police, removal of grand juries in cases involving police shootings, an immediate halt to militarize police units and weapons, an extensive review of racialized police practices in black neighborhoods. Um, so... Yeah, I thought that was really great. Um, Absurdus Word, did you have something else to say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the things that's, um, that's really sort of impressive um, is that the, the, the ability to sort of to, to consistently sort of make a statement by through interruption, um, I think that it's, it's often overlooked. Um, and I think that it's often... Um, you know, people are sort of like, oh, well, you know, what, you know, what, what's going to do? Oh, that was just sort of the symbolic thing. Um, but I think that part, a lot of that, a lot of that, uh, a lot of those ideas come from the the notion that um, that people shouldn't be doing that. So you sort of downplay the importance of it. You downplay, um, you know, the the legitimacy of it because the last thing that anybody wants is for you know sort of a disruption of of normal you know normal behavior. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of interesting to me when I watch sort of a lot of the reactions to things like Black Christmas, to things like the Black Brunch, to, you know, various sort of shut it down, um, campaigns. Um, you know, the, the response is often, you know, I know that, you know, you're dying. I know that there are these things, but I have things to do. And I think that, you know, that a consistent campaign of, of disruption, um, sort of makes that, uh, makes that a more uh, obvious position, and and when you sort of have to say that out loud, um, it it becomes more obvious how sort of ethically bankrupt it is. Yeah, though that's an excellent point. I say all the time, people try and make this pitch like, what does it do being you know protesting all this kind of stuff? And I I always point out that you know these tactics are used because that's the agency that we have. 
you know, um, that's the the level of access that we are afforded as black people in this country. Um, and so I always, you know, challenge uh, white accomplices to not mimic what we do because we do what we're in the streets because that's that's the leverage we have is in the streets that's the leverage we are able to exercise at this moment in our country's history which is to stop uh through disruption uh business as usual from happening and and inconveniencing people and putting applying pressure in those ways um and so I always challenge white accomplices to not mimic what we do because they have more access than we do and they need to turn that lens on the, on the spaces they have access to that we don't and direct their actions in that regard. So that's, that's a really good point to make. Um, and thanks to all of those that participated. I know that everyone did get out of jail. I think the longest person that was held was uh, two people in Los Angeles that were held for, I think, three days total. I'm in jail, and most were released the next day, and they did arrest quite a few people in all of the cities involved. Um, so I guess we'll move on to our general, uh, you know, year in discussion, year end discussion for 2015, which was interesting. Uh, then the year was named the year of resistance and resilience um, during New Year's last year, which I think was an interesting choice. And I don't know how how you guys felt about that title, and if you think that it was. Um, indicative of actions taken during the year. What, what did you think, Drew? We'll start with you. I'm sorry, I was I wasn't hearing that. I apologize. Oh, uh, <laughs> what are you doing? Over there? I was. I'm in the middle of that crazy Facebook post. Get uh, off of Facebook while we're doing the show. Sorry. Thanks. Um, so the um, we were talking about the year of uh, resistance and resilience, which the year was labeled by uh, movement leaders at the beginning of the year last year. And just, do you think that? That the actions taken this year lived up to that. Do you think that it was in line with that that goal? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think resistance and resilience uh, were displayed by, uh, I would say, activists and youth and leaders and protest and act uh, movement folk uh, throughout the year. I think, uh, well, I shouldn't say it should be obvious, but uh, it seemed obvious to me that that was the the per- uh, one of the overriding goals and purpose. There's obviously individual demands with a lot of different actions, mm-hmm. but. Um, no, I think uh, in particular things like the M4BL convening in Cleveland, uh, there were some really powerful things this year that um, I say absolutely was the year of resistance and resilience. Hmm. I, con- I concur. What about you, Ricky? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was accurate. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, you can say that without question. I mean, as Drew mentioned, M4BL, um, the uprisings in Baltimore, I mean, hmm. there there's so much to just go through when you uh, bring Newsom, like, sorry, we're not taking your shit anymore. Like, Hey, <laughs> you know, it, the, the systemic racism and the insult to injury are really fucked up. And we're kind of, we're kind of tired of keeping our mouth shut about it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, sure. You, I'm sure you're tired of hearing about it. I'm tired <laughs> of talking about it, but, uh, it's still happening. So I got to talk about it. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and how about you, Absurdist Wars? Actually, I think your, your, your um, Frequently Asked Questions series, to me, it speaks to resiliency and resistance because you kind of flip the narrative a bit in that action. So um, if you first, if you just talk a little bit about how that came to be, that would be great for people to kind of get an idea. And we'll definitely include um, links in the show notes to it. And then, you know, your thoughts on that kind of overriding goals for the year of resistance and resiliency. Um, I think that, that I mean, I, I've got a bunch of goals for for resistance. Um, I think that um, 
that you know part of you know one of the 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 things that have been that's been sort of really great um has been just the ability to um to sort of reach out and educate um and um and sort of lessen the load i think um for a lot of the people who are who are out here sort of speaking and and trying to make a difference and and teaching and educating um and i think part of um you know part of that uh, the ability sort of to be resilient, um, you know, is is about the resources that we have, you know, at our disposal. Um, you know, like I, I, you know, one of the the cool things that has gotten, you know, that that's gotten a lot of reception um, has been, you know, the the ability to to, you know, to educate about, um, you know, about what black people are talking about and what black people mean um, when they're having their discussions, understanding the context that people have. Um, and sort of leveling the playing ground so that, you know, people who are talking can, can spend energy, um, on movement and on, um, on, you know, on moving forward as opposed to on sort of dealing with the sort of ground level, um, issues, mm. you know? Absolutely. And then, um, just so everyone knows what your, um, frequently asked question, uh, series, uh, is all about so they can get a good idea where that came from and how it kind of sure. came together. Um, the, the, basically the idea behind it was that, you know, I realized that, you know, over the past year on Twitter, you know, I realized that, that a, a ton of the conversations, you know, you had a, a, a number of different kind of conversations. You've got conversations, you know, with white people who are really earnest, who are, you know, who are, they're, they're allies, they're woke, they're, you know, they, they're really doing the thing. Uh, guys like very white guys, you know, really out there, you know, you know, really just talking to people and, um, you know, trying to explain to, you know, to people what the, you know, what systemic racism is about. And, um, but then you also have the conversations with the people who are the, you know, who are the trolls and they're just sort of out there to, you know, to create noise, to create distraction. And a lot of the way that they do that is sort of by putting forward a lot of, of confusing information. So you've got people who are putting forth, you know, bad statistics or they're, you know, running through memes that, um, you know, that, that aren't really based on anything, but that support sort of bigoted outlooks. Um, and then you have the people who are sort of in between. You have the people who, who they're not really trolling, but they still are just really indoctrinated with so much white supremacy mm. and they've never really questioned it. Um, they, they don't really know it. And, and a lot of times they're defensive about it, um, you know, because of white fragility, because of, just the, you know, the idea that, you know, they thought of themselves as good people. And so the idea of thinking of oneself as a racist and as a good person, you know, it's, it's contradictory. And so people have a hard time, you know, understanding it either, you know, either I'm one of the good guys or I said something racist and there's nothing in between. Mm. Um, and so that conversation, um, so much time and effort, uh, I think on, you know, in, in the discussions I was seeing was around this, was around people repeating, you know, having to explain what the difference is between, you know, racism and, and systematic racism and why black people are never talking about individual, you know, bigotry. You know, can a, can a what black person say, I hate all white folks? Sure they can. Is that the same thing as systemic racism? Of course not. But, you know, because of the fact that a lot of times people aren't using terms correctly, there's a lot of equivocation about, um, you know, what people mean. So one group of people is using racism one way, another group of people are using racism the other way, and, and the conversation can't proceed because mm. there's just argument about whether or not those things are, you know, are, 
are compatible. Mm. So when black people say black people can't be racist and white people say there was a guy yesterday who said that I sucked because I was white, yes, in that situation, both people are speaking correct words. Um, but not understanding that context means that there can't be any agreement there. There can't be the kind of accord that allows real discussion to happen. Mm. So for me, what I thought was important and what just sort of started as, as just a, a thing of frustration of not wanting to have to answer the questions anymore, um, you know, I just wrote down a fact of just literally just the, the most common questions that people would ask about race. You know, isn't Black Lives Matter racist? Um, you know, isn't it racist to say that, you know, that my opinion isn't valid or, or isn't wanted? Um, you know, aren't things like affirmative action racist because they don't, you know, take care of black people, they don't take care of white people. Mm. And so a lot of those questions were things that I felt needed to be addressed, but not just sort of pointed at white people, because yes, it's a resource, you know, if you really want to be an ally, it's a great resource to go through and, and just get, you know, some, some establishment so that you're not coming out of left field. But also for black people who are out there educating, you know, if you can hand somebody a fact and say, hey, listen, read this and then get back into the conversation, then, you know, that's something that's really important because that allows them to go and have the conversation they want to have. And, you know, one of the, the, the sort of analogies I, I, I spoke of about this is like if you are a person who is trying to talk about quantum physics, but every five minutes somebody comes in and asks you what an atom is, you're never going to be able to get to, you know, all the stuff you're trying to say. Mm. So being able to point somebody to a reference and say, here, you know, bone up, and then once you, you, once you got this stuff, jump back in on, on this conversation, um, really allows people to sort of have the deeper conversations and the more important conversations instead of doing one-on-one all day. Mm. Great. And again, we'll have links um, to each of those um, different sections of that um, FAQ in the show notes, because I think it's a really good resource for folks, as you said, and also just a, a great way to kind of like refresh yourself on these these conversations. And I don't know about anybody else, but I, I just do point people there just when I get those questions. I'll just be like, here, just look here, because I can't get into the same com- conversation again, as you mentioned. Um Awesome. So now that we've given a good overview of like that, that overarching, um, I wanted to get into maybe some things that you all that stood out for each of you. Um, and we'll kind of just continue to go around the horn and people can, you can all just chime in as to the, the highlights for, for each of you. Ricky, did you have a highlight that you wanted to mention and have us discuss from, from um, the year? From the year? Mm. I, I, it definitely has to be, um, the convening mm. uh, as that was, amazing like we've all talked and we've talked about it before how um it just felt like living on a different planet mm. it was it was strange and there were still systemic issues you know the um but they were able to be addressed like it you know it was amazing yeah it really was you know uh, obviously i didn't get to attend like most people did um because i was working the whole time but it was a very unique even from the planning perspective was a very unique thing and it really showed how you can bring intentionality into a space and see it manifest itself um when we talk about you know safety beyond policing you know we really tried to live out a lot of those values inherent in that question at m4bl so when we were at the planning table discussing the things we needed and what we didn't need you know we started with who we wanted to be there and then discuss the impediments for them getting there 
And then we planned everything with the intention of removing those obstacles from people attending. So if we had parents that needed daycare, then we needed to make sure we provided daycare for people. If we had people that had financial issues and probably wouldn't be able to pay to attend, then we had to make sure that there was a way for them to not have to pay to attend. If people needed to get transportation there, we had to make sure that we had a way to get transportation for folks. And if people needed a place to stay, then we needed to make sure that there were um, affordable or free places for people to stay. And it was such a different um planning atmosphere and it completely changed my own kind of perceptions of how we can do work like this because starting from that base of always going back to making sure we were servicing the purpose of the convening and the people that we intended on creating this space for made it really revolutionary and um you know a lot of hard fought you know conversations even with the places we were interacting with and people, um, vendors and things where it's like, okay, normally you might be having to call the police when um, you smell weed, but we don't want you to do that. We want you to call our safety team and we will handle it. And it was beautiful to see all of those dynamics play out at in real time there. Um, and that's not to say there weren't stressful moments because there were, but it really was like Ricky said, just a different, just a different, um, atmosphere to be in. Now, Drew, you were watching from the outside. Um, a very white guy was there um, as a part of a group of white allies that were holding space and, and doing some trainings for any white folks that decided to show up. Um, I wouldn't say uninvited because that makes it sound bad, but you know, <laughs> the space, as I said, we're creating a black only space. And so there was an alternative there and Drew was there, you know, in that capacity. Um, so you didn't get to go to any of the, you know, the regular stuff, but what, what was your observation? You spent a lot of time in the general area kind of being able to interact with white folks. Uh, there was, a, you know, I think, I don't know if I've talked about it before. Um, it was interesting. I felt a little bit like a, you know, I was saying interloper, but like almost like I was voy- uh, voyeuristically uh, observing things. Mm. Like there was a, um, I did see the keynote because um, it was streaming. Someone periscoped it. Oh, right. And uh, so, and I think I said to you at the time, um, every single thing there, nothing there. It was interesting to see a space where, me, a white man, was nothing was for me at all. Like nothing was cultivated for me, nothing was curated for me, nothing was about me, nothing was for me. And to see, um, to see what that was like, because um, that's probably what it's like for you a lot, um, you know, <laughs> in the average world, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the whole lot's cultivated for, for blackness or black women. Um, so it was interesting. And it did, um, you know, it felt, uh, I did, I felt voyeuristic at one point, um, but I thought it was very powerful and, and amazing. Um, not that it, it wasn't my highlight, but as you said, I wasn't there. I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't. It wasn't for me. I wasn't there in a sort of capacity. Sure, um, sure. So it no, be, I just was curious to see your yeah. like your observation of it. That's that's actually. I hadn't even thought of you seeing this space that had no had taken nothing about you into account sure. when it was being built. And, uh, and it really, it was. Uh, you know, it it felt there was a. Like I said, it felt voyeuristic and it, it felt there was a sense of like not off, but just not continuity with my normal white frame of reference. Mm. Um, but then there was the uh, – to see sort of in action the uh, young man that was pulled off of the RTA bus yeah. uh, and sort of the things that happened surrounding that and then ultimately to get that young man home. Uh, that was unbelievable. That was perhaps the most uh, just powerful – not even the right adjective. I've never seen – uh, you know, you would call family, black folk. I've just never seen a group of black people 
powerfully committed and working in a way that just, you know, you just, you just, I was like, okay, I do. Yeah, we can win. Holy shit. What I just witnessed. Yeah, that was unbelievable from start to finish from everything. You know, you were there, Ricky, the, the, from the cops reaction to the crowds reaction, the things that were happening, the, the, the self care, the love. It was just, it, that for me was powerful to witness. Um, but really, like I said, it wasn't about or for me. Uh, and absurdist words, I know you weren't in um, Cleveland, but what was, did you notice what was going on? Like, what was the take of people that were not there, but probably maybe seeing things on social media or like interacting with folks that were there? Were, were there any, you know, ripples out there in, in the rest of the world? We were very isolated, so it's hard to know. I, I was actually, I was actually, I'm not, I'm not a good barometer for that um, because that was one of the few things that I was, that I wasn't out at. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, like, um, it, it's funny because I, I, I wasn't part of, part of the thing, but like, it, uh, I, I echo a lot of that that sentiment, um, you know, with the you know with the women's freedom conference, um, and it, it felt which felt very much the same, you know, the same way, um, and I knew it did, did have a huge uh, did have a huge reach, but um, I, you know, I, I often get lost in my in my sort of Twitter holes. Um, so there's often stuff that happens and I, and it, it runs by me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. So that was Ricky's highlight. It was a big highlight for me too. As an organizer, it was a big highlight for me. It was a lot of work and I was in Cleveland for almost a month prior to, to the, uh, the, the convening and folks getting there. And it was a lot of work for the team. And it's funny, you know, I've been with various members of the team. We got together to do our, our debrief in August and then I've seen them at other things as well. Um, and whenever we interact with somebody who went, we're like, oh, how was it? Because we have no idea. So it's been really nice to like interact with people that attended and hear what their thoughts were on it. Because um, from an organizing perspective, it's really easy to get very critical and look at it from a critiquing eye. And so it's been nice to kind of hear people's reactions to it and, and what, what they got out of it or didn't for that matter. So that's been really great. Um Drew, do you have a highlight that you'd like to start with to, to kick us off here too? And yeah, we did a lot and I was thinking throughout the year because we were part of a historic march in Philadelphia. Yep. We were in Baltimore. Yep. We were in uh, Cleveland twice. Yep. You were in Minneapolis. But for me, um, it would have been uh, Timmy Rice's anniversary hmm. in Cleveland. Uh, was that right before Thanksgiving? Yeah. Like late the November? Week before, yeah. And uh, only for uh, being a little bit more intimately involved in um, some of the connections um, that I made on that trip. It was a, a highlight for me. And so what was that like? I mean, I think for you, it was the first time you had really been involved in planning an action and taking action in terms of like direct action that, that was a little more intricate. And I don't want you to talk about the specifics of the action, but just about the process of it and interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. Uh, you know, and I, uh, you said before that like people kind of assume or make a, a false assumptions that not a lot goes into it. And I think uh, in particular white people, we, we have this thing where it's like, oh, you know, like, uh, and I've heard it described usually like white people will be in a meeting and everyone's like, okay, we're going to go left. We're going to go left. We're going to go left. Everyone's going to go left. And then the last minute, we're like, we have to go right. And 13 white people, but we were supposed to go left. Why are we going right? What do we mean to go right? We want to go left. We trained to go left. What do you mean to go right? So, you know, I've educated myself to the point that, okay, shut the fuck up and just kind of like, you know, go, go with go the flow. With whatever. It, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's still the sort of, and I don't know if it's like, you know, supremacist conditioning, but even my own self that I was, uh, I was aware and knew that a lot went into sort of planning these things. Um, I was blown away <laughs> by the scale and the scope 
and the thought like there is beyond a lot goes into it. It's like, you know, I know personally individuals, multiple that were up all night racking their brain, thinking of every iota, every little thing, every piece, every nuance. And, uh, and I'm not going to like, you know, shout or call the people out, but I was, you know, on the inverse of a, of a different kind of action and I was communicating with you and I, I you know, kind of came to that conclusion, like, good Lord, this is, this has not been thought out. This has not been planned. The, the, the goal and the objective is not clear. This doesn't seem smart. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Um, so for Drew's me, talking about white people. Over time, doing that <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. There was a, a group of white people. That was part of an action. I just like, I'm, again, I'm not trying to like throw salt and shit, but it's like, it just wasn't thought out in a way. And on the, on the, on the, on Cleveland, the actions were like thought out a misnomer, you know, like anytime a white person's like, Oh, you know, I wonder if like, Nope, just stop because they did. We wondered. Yeah, they, exactly. They don't just stop. Yeah. You know, and again, I don't, I'm not saying that it makes you a bad person, but that is part of a just sort of general, uh, you know, especially me as a white man, I've been conditioned to like always and forever think like my input's valuable and good and appropriate and needed. And like no one else thought of that too. And mm. you know what I mean? Like the whole like exceptional sort of thing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, like even in that action, I, I certainly was again, smart enough to not say anything, but it was still once in the middle of like, Holy cow. Like I vastly, vastly underestimated. Like I knew a lot went into it and I still vastly underestimated the amount of, of thought and input and work that went into it and just work the whole weekend. You know, we were there for, mm. 96 hours, four or five days. Yeah. And uh, it, it was nonstop, you know. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And when, and really what struck me was that, that shit white races always yell, like, get a job. Like, <laughs> like this, A, like, this is more work than you'll ever fucking do. You know what I mean? Like, so you've to say, like, A, all these folks have jobs. Like, first they have a, a paying job. And, like, they're on school breaks and winter breaks and other things doing, like, this work or taking time off to do it. Uh, but it, it was a lot of work. It's it's uh, it's not easy work, uh, and I think oftentimes people uh, can mistake it for that. And you know the whole hashtag activism and people overestimate their importance to to this or that. And I, you know, very white guy as a Twitter handle, I've said this. It ain't shit. It's like like maybe it does some good. I don't fucking know. Nothing I've measured. Like but but <laughs> you know like but Drew the 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 person sitting here on this podcast talking with you. Like I know what I do and, and who I support and what I do and where I go. And I, and I stand by that work. You know all day long. I'm very proud of that. But Twitter, I don't know. Now, not to downplay anyone that does, you know, uses Twitter exclusively as their whatever. I know. think, I mean, everybody has a role to play. That's my thing. It's not about, you know, importance or not importance. But um, I thought it was, you had a lot of thoughts on that just because you hadn't been around a lot of the planning process of it. So that was interesting. For it was me. amazing. If I had to pick, a, I had a, quite a few highlights of the year. Um, but I have to say that um, the Confederate flag coming down um, via Bree Newsom in um, in South Carolina was a huge highlight for me for this year in terms yeah. of movement actions. So I much. just remember I was in Cleveland when it happened and we had been in contact with folks that were obviously, um, you know, involved in the planning process and kind of, you know, uh, messaging around it. So we had a little bit of a heads up, but the actual action itself, the quiet stillness of it, you know, in the very wee morning hours just after daybreak with little fanfare and no media around and not a press conference called, just a woman and an accomplice climbing a flagpole. The the beauty of that action just struck me. And I was so um, 
just moved almost to tears just watching the video and seeing the the reaction from artists drawing her as super as as Wonder Woman up up on top of the flagpole and and this iconic image of her you know kind of at that moment of taking it down I thought it was just beautiful and that was a big highlight for me mm. um Upsetter's words were you going to say something about that yeah, no, it was, it was absolutely amazing. And I think one of the things that was really great about that particular action is, you know, all the things that you described, but, but when you think about the symbolism and the importance of flags in our culture, um, when you think of what it means to have your flag taken down, I mean, that, that literally is um, sort of the sign of defeat. Um, you know, if, you, if, you, if, your, if your flag gets captured, you know, that's you going down. And I think that that was sort of such a, a beautiful moment for black people to feel like, you know, there was this, you know, we did capture the, the, the Confederate flag, you know, uh, finally, you know, in, the, in its place where it was. And, you know, and that, and that it was followed up by it being taken down officially, um, you know, it, it just, it made it such a delicious victory. Um, and I think that, you know, it, in a way that um, a lot of, you know, other actions, you know, doesn't have because it was so small um, and because it was so singular. Um, you know, for me, it's hard to, to not look at Brie Newsom as, you know, as a superhero. Of mm. And, you know, even the images of her with the cape, you know, they feel right because mm-hmm. of, you know, such a, a bold um, and striking, striking action. And I thought, I think that, um, you know, the significance of it as, not just an act of defiance, but as a really, really strong act of symbolism, you know, with, with regard to America and its military kind of history um, and the importance that America places on things like flags. Um, I think it was just great. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, I've, something else that I, I have as a highlight or certainly something to think about, you know, uh, Drew mentioned we, we did go to Baltimore um, during Baltimore Uprising to work with Operation Helper Hush, Hush on Baltimore Lunch. Uh, when the uprising happened, the Baltimore City Schools closed down for a week. And for a lot of children, especially in Freddie Gray's neighborhood of Gilmore Homes, that meant they were losing two meals that they usually count on per day. So Operation Helper Hush went into action and fed children during that entire time that schools were closed. And so we just jumped in our car and grabbed a bunch of stuff at Costco and went to, to help them kind of distribute stuff and get things together. Um but the indictment of the six officers uh, who were responsible for Freddie Gray's death was def- definitely a highlight for me. Uh, and their names, uh, I'll read them now because I feel like too often it's referred to as the Freddie Gray trial and he's not on trial. So uh, yeah. Caesar R. Goodson Jr., Garrett E. Miller, Edward M. Nero, Alicia D. White, Brian W. Rice, and William G. Porter, who uh, was... Uh, a hung jury just a couple of weeks ago um, will potentially or possibly be um, on trial again. Um, I think June time frame is what it looks like right now. But I thought that was a, a watershed moment for the people of Baltimore because they had and have and continue to live under, you know, uh, like so many of our especially large cities, a tale of two cities, a white Baltimore and black Baltimore and this um this case and this death of Freddie Gray and I happened to be in Baltimore on March to Justice the day that Freddie died. We were marching through Baltimore that day and had gone to church that morning and were sitting in church when the news came that um, that he had passed away. Um, so it wow. was it was a very like I felt really connected to uh, both Baltimore and and to to Freddie himself and to the the people that loved him in Baltimore. So um, that indictment was really. Um, 
something for me to, to watch this black woman get up and, um, and say she was holding these six police officers accountable for this death, especially when it was so clear that he should have never been arrested in the first place. Because I feel like so often, you know, this focus on the end result when we never even address the fact that most Black people that get caught in our system should never have even been interacting with the system. We look at Sandra Bland. We look at so many other of these cases where there's no reason for uh, our criminal justice system to come in contact with black people. And yet the entire economic system of criminal justice is built on, on black people. So they have to create these moments where we interact and, and they often end up, um, you know, if not ruining a person's life and livelihood, certainly death is also a possibility as well. And so um, for me, that was a big one, just seeing um, at least the, the start of accountability in regard to this one singular death in, in Baltimore. Um, Ricky, what were your thoughts on, on that, the indictment and kind of all of that, the, the Baltimore uprising and everything associated with it? Um, I thought it was a logical conclusion to like <laughs> such a fucked up situation. You take, you take a man who had some recent, had interactions with the cops, knows or at least has a fucking, you know, pretty, it's a pretty safe bet. You're already a felon. You look, you catch a cop by the eye, he's going to stop you. Whether you're doing anything wrong or you don't have to do anything wrong to go to jail and then go back to jail for violating like parole or probation, mm-hmm. weren't on either, or just not be on either. You still just stay your ass in jail. I think I'm going to run. <laughs> like, this seems safe. This seems like the safest, you know, choice. And he was right. Because. Clearly, they had some intent on fucking with him. Mm. Like, and then you, and then with the uprising itself, when people say that they're tired of shit like this and they do it, and then you have cops antagonizing people, children no less. Yeah. Um, hor- not just and not just any fucking form of children, but hormonal ass teenagers, probably the most unstable human beings on the planet. At any, you know, as as ages go, and then you just go fuck with them. Mm. You know what you're doing. You can predict. You, you know, all that shit was calculated. You can predict. You can predict these things. It's not. You know, human beings are a lot alike. There, we have a lot of differences. We have many differences, and we can appreciate those. But at our cores, we are we're a lot alike. And you put us, you put people in similar situations, you get similar outcomes. So, you know. What else can you expect from someone? I grew up in L.A. during the fucking riots. Like, I understand the frustration that that it took for it to even get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Drew, what were your thoughts about Baltimore and Freddie Gray? And and I don't know why, but I just for some reason it's stuck in my memory when we went down for the supplies for Helper Hush. Yeah, Uh, I think that was in the report about. The Black Lives Matter movement being under surveillance, that right. they said uh, activists bringing supplies oh, to, to Baltimore from New Jersey, and, and I was like, <laughs> like that, that's not, that's us. They're, they're talking about yeah. us, but like it was like PB and J's for fucking kids, like and like literally, like when, when you read that headline, like you know, mm-hmm. activists bringing supplies, like like we were supplying, like fueling, like what they called a riot, the uprising, and when like I was, it was me, it was you and me, and like when you literally think of what we were doing. We fucking like went and bought like bread and peanut butter jelly and lunch bags and fucking drink boxes and we sat in a church basement and made fucking lunches and delivered them to people. Right. Like and, and like literally that that's what somehow got deemed as mm. 
You know, you know what I'm yeah, saying? the like, surveillance of Baltimore was really beyond the the drones. I remember um, a, a, just my, our phones started doing weird things when we got there. Yeah, that was definitely an eye opener there. Um, absurdist words. What were your thoughts about both the Baltimore uprising, the Freddie Gray case, kind of the, the indictment, all of that? Um, I think I thought it was great um, to actually see indictments, and for me, I you know I, I still. Um, um, I'm cautious, sort of, about celebrating indictments um, because it really, it, it really is the lowest bar, um, you know. Sort of as we were saying before, and like, and so I am, you know, on one hand, you know, I, I absolutely agree, and I, I think that it's, um, I think that it's really important, you know, like you said, that there is, um, you know, a, a level of accountability that's happening, that it wasn't just completely, uh, you know, swept under the rug, um, but at the same time. Um, it, it, it sort of makes me think, you know, where do we set the bar right now? Just the idea, you know, because all indictment is is that is agreement that a crime took place, and so in a situation like Freddie Gray, where you have, you know, somebody who was was you know alive and well when it started and dead when it was over, um, you know, and within the custody of the police, um, with so many different things there, you know, the idea that you know that we can all just admit that a crime happened. Um, I think is a really low bar. Um, and so I understand a lot of the, you know, a lot of the anger that, that was there, a lot of the, a lot of the rage that happens. Um, you know, so it, it's a, it's a victory, but, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways we've sort of been conditioned to accept, you know, sort of the most minor things as victories. Um, you know, I, I, I think for me, you know, just, you know, the, some of the great highlights of this year, um, have been the convictions, you know, convictions of Holtzclaw, who I know that, you know, you, you spent a lot of time keeping, you know, keeping up in the, you know, in the, in the news and yeah. um, keeping people, you know, speaking about it. But, you know, things like that are the situations where I think we're actually, um, you know, we're actually making progress, where we can actually see that a conviction is possible. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I would like to see um, more convictions. I'd like to see us um, not that I don't celebrate the indictments, but I, I'd like to see us move past the point where an indictment is the thing to celebrate. Um, because a lot of times, you know, the indictments happen. And, and, and another thing about the indictments um, is that a lot of times the indictments are for, uh, are deliberately for unprovable crimes. So, you know, in situations of, uh, you know, of police brutality and, and uh, people being killed by police, you know, um, all those sort of things, um, you know, a lot of times you get sort of first-degree murder charges, um, and first-degree murder is pretty much unprovable because it's usually not the crime at hand. Right. What you're usually looking at is criminally negligent homicide, you know, manslaughter and that sort of thing. So, you know, one of the great things about the Freddie Gray case is that there actually was a variety of charges put forward that seemed to be a lot more accurate towards uh, what was going on. But a lot of times we see an indictment and an indictment really is just, um, you know, it's just a, a, a bone that's being thrown because somebody's being indicted for something that a prosecutor knows they're never going to actually convict on. So, you know, I think that this was, you know, that this was was a was a great step forward. Um, you know, I know that one of the cases already has has uh, have been you know tossed, but um, there's still a bunch of others that are that are going to happen. So I'm, I'm hoping that it, it you know goes forward and that we actually see justice here. Yeah, me too. I, I'm I'm hopeful, and I hope um, 
that we're able to see some some actual movement in terms of convictions in, in that case for sure. Um, I'm going to pause here for just one second, you guys, because we have somebody that's going to be joining us. So we are so lucky right now. We have two uh, new additions to the conversation. First, we have Jonathan Newton, who's president of the National Association Against Police Brutality. He's also a law student at the University of District of Columbia Law School and a former law enforcement officer. He's been on the show previously. Thank you so much for being here, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you here. And we also have Comicia here, who uh, I'm going to give you her title because it's the best one I've had all year. She's someone who tries to stand up for what is right, and we're really happy to have her on here to join the discussion as well. Oh, thank you so much for even thinking of me. Good to have you. Good to have you. So we just finished talking about Baltimore and Freddie Gray, and we're kind of talking about each of our personal highlights and then discussing that. Absurdist words, I'm going to turn it over to you and, and let, let me know what your next highlight would be uh, from 2015 in the movement. So, um, yeah, I, I started mentioning it a little bit before, but one of my favorite things um, that happened uh, was the Women's Freedom Conference, um, which I had the um, I had the, 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 the pleasure and the honor of being able to support. Um, my wife hit on a tutu, um, you know, was also supporting that uh, with Feminista Jones. And um, it was just really, really amazing um, and really just the thing of, of just pure positivity. Mm. Um, it was really great to, you know, to spend an entire day just watching um, tons of really just powerful, driven, ambitious black women and women of color um, really just talking about, um, you know, how to, how to succeed, how to, how to be powerful, reveling, you know, in, in the strength of women, um, you know, planning, um, you know, just all of the different uh, ways that people are just out there trying to, um, to, you know, just to make the world a better space um, for all sorts of women, for trans women. Um, you know, the speakers were absolutely incredible. Um, it was just such an, an incredibly powerful and uplifting thing. Um, and I just remember, you know, just, just sort of being able to, to sit there and, and, and just retweet everything that happened all day um, and just be able to sort of sit back and just watch all this power happen. Um, and, you know, just, just like, you know, Drew was saying earlier, um, it was really sort of um, a great feeling um, and a rare feeling to, to look at a space, again, that was, was not for you, um, where, you know, you were not the center of attention because just in the same way that, you know, white people get, you know, everything sent for them, they, you know, it's the same thing just for being male, um, even if you're black, um, especially with regard to black women. So being able to have that, um, to watch something that was just created for women of color, um, by women of color, um, and just reveling in it, you know, unapologetically um, was just really inspiring. It was really amazing. Yeah, that was definitely a highlight for me, too. I mean, a Women's Freedom Conference was amazing. I don't even know who else to say it. It was like a breath of fresh air in the midst of a really difficult year. And it also, you know, as you said, just the, the talent and the seamless technology and the true, you know, gathering of people from so many different areas of life. And, and it was accessible and it was thoughtful and thought provoking and just beautiful. I, I absolutely, I mean, I can't even, it was so amazing. So did all of you guys get to, I don't know, Kamisa, did you get to experience any of women's freedom conference at all? No, unfortunately, I did not. Luckily, it's on demand, so you can go to womensfreedomconference.com and check it out so everybody can still right. revel in the definitely. amazingness that all of those those folks were. Drew, you definitely uh, listened to a bunch of it. 
Is that your bell? Yeah, it's my bell. I, I, uh, <laughs> it was it was great. It was amazing. I, I would say, uh, you know, and hat tip to Kinesia. I've learned a lot from you and just uh, reading. Uh, I think I've probably, you know, as a white cis hat man working my way through uh, you know oppressive stuff, I've learned probably more from black women than than any other group. Period. And when I said, uh, you know, you were involved with it, I said, oh, okay, um, you know, how's it work? And I remember I, I registered and did all this stuff, and I was really even surprised, like, oh, it's just live like here all day like you know uh, as an event and uh i was here all day in front of my computer tweeting and, and listening to uh, i saw all the all the all demand ones and all the live sessions uh, i thought it was terrific and then as a uh hat tip to is it uh honey on twitter i think that yeah, was the technician mm-hmm. uh you know i i do virtualized events uh for a living and uh the month before uh had done my own uh, big event for my job and i was still uh i was like wow you know you guys did some things that were uh, really impressive, uh, given the scale, the scope, and uh, I thought it was tremendous, tremendous that it was online and free and streaming, and uh, it was just great, great content. Yeah, that's definitely was a huge highlight. Um, John- I think it was also. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Jonathan. No, I was gonna say I think that another another really great thing about it for me was um, you know when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and you see how much of that movement is driven by women of color. Um, even though it constantly sort of on its face a lot of the time is still skewed towards um, the issues of, of, of black men, which, of course, are still serious. We still have Freddie Gray and Jameer mm-hmm. Rice. But, you know, the fact that, you know, the movement that is so incredibly powered by women of color um, is often um, neglectful or, or sort of, sort of derelict in, 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 in a lot of ways of, of uh, amplifying the issues of women of color um, and respecting them as, you know, as equal partners. Um, I think that, that that trend, I think, was, um, was something that was combated by the Women's Freedom Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to see not just that there are these women drivers, but that, um, that they got to be heard, that they, you know, that they had a place where they were front and center, um, I think was was a, was a great space, and I think was well deserved. Yeah, it was really good. I'll include notes uh, or links to to all the on demand content in the show notes today as well. Uh, Jonathan, I'm gonna turn to you. What, what was a highlight you wanted to bring into the conversation from last year? Well, <clears throat> right before my, uh, my my father passed away in June, and so my 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 year was uh, segmented in that you know with with that as as uh, as a point that I'll always remember, but right before that, the month before that, July the 3rd, is anybody remember what happened on July the 3rd? That was the day that uh, Bree Newsom. Oh yeah. We just, we just yeah. talked about that. That's funny, but that's a great highlight for sure. That's, that was my highlight, that was of, the highlight of the year. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me to watch that uh, uh, and, and, and see that, uh, that was a historic moment. And, you know, adding on to what you all were talking about, it was a moment that a, a, a woman of color led. And, and, and that's, been our, that's been our history with a lot of our movements in America is that women have led going all the way back to our Underground Railroad. And we have um, <clears throat> allowed our history sort of to be um, cast as though it's been led by men of strength and it. And it and I'm not going to say that we don't have men of strength, but I will say that uh, it's, it's, it's we're remiss when we don't really acknowledge the truth of, of our movements have often been led 
more so than not by women of color. And watching Brie do what she did, it kind of it opened up the rest of the. It, it, it set the. It really did set the tone for what uh, uh, it's going to be like in civil rights over the next generation. Hmm. We're going to be we're going to be pulling down a whole lot of symbols, and we're going to be changing an entire system that has still been in existence uh, since this country's been founded. Mm. Speaking of symbols, one thing I really loved was the uh, Stone Mountain 7 um, action this past year, which was really amazing to me. Um, For those who are not um, familiar, Stone Mountain 7 were seven activists who went up to Stone Mountain, which is a testament and and monument to um, Civil War uh, generals and the Civil War in general, uh, the Confederacy, and, uh, you know, were met on the side of the mountain by full-on uh, white supremacists. I don't even know how else to say it. I mean, it was really mm-hmm. um, armed, armed. armed. There, was, yeah. there was a guy up there. There was a scene in that. Uh, there was a, there was a photograph where there was a white supremacist who was up there with his hand on his pistol and a police officer uh, waving him off, holding him off with, with without the police officer didn't have his hand on his pistol. Nope. So yeah, it was that was a scene. Yeah, it was really. Um, something to behold and to see play out in real time. So um, that was a big, a big uh, moment for me. Kamisia, did you have anything that stuck out in your mind from the last year that you were like, yeah, that, that really stuck out for me. I mean, for me, it's, it's so many people are stepping into their power. Mm. It's how I would like to put it. We, I mean, we have these conversations all the time amongst ourselves. Yes. And when I say ourselves, I'm talking about black people, people of color. But now we're, we're bringing it out into the forefront. We are demanding that you look at our issues just as importantly as you look at white people's issues. Mm. Because right. we are America. We are right. America. Everything that America is, they got from the natives and they got from the Africans that they enslaved and brought here. They set it up for us to fail, and yet we rise every time. And still, we're a loving people. We don't want to replace white supremacy with black supremacy. We just right. want everyone to be equal. We want us to be everyone to be judged fairly. And by consistently pointing it out, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, we're making the comp- we we are now driving the, the the media. The media no longer drives us. We drive the media. And I think that that is amazing. Absolutely. And we're, and we're, we're trying we're trying to teach these white people how to speak out and to renounce their privilege. And, you know, sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. Everyone steps out of their lane every now and again. But we're, we're humans and we're flawed. Yeah. But we're raising a more conscious generation. The people who are following us, this won't be such a struggle for them. Mm. Absolutely. I don't, I, I don't want us to drop the ball. I'm not going to say that the civil rights movement dropped the ball. Of course, I'm not going to say that. But we're not gonna, I don't think we're ever going to go back to that place where we think we've done enough. You know what? I was on a radio show. I was on a radio show uh, a couple weeks back, and and we were talking about you know the, some of, some of the other guests were you know adversarial or critical of, of of what the civil rights movement did not do, and I said you know we have to realize that we are uh, each generation of, of African Americans in this country is a new iteration of our boldness and of our power and of our strength. And so what they were doing in their time was bold and powerful for their time. 
there were still people inside their communities that were saying, hey, y'all be quiet now. Y'all don't want to upset these folks, you know. But they stood up and they they transformed us from Jim Crow into an era where we did have, you know, at least on paper, civil rights. So now uh, we're taking what's on paper and we're we're now attempting to make them live up to that word uh, even now. And what what, what this generation is doing, is, is a bold step, and it's another iteration of our strength in, in that you have people in their 20s and in their 30s who are saying they're not going to take it. They, they didn't wait for anybody's approval. They're not waiting for, uh, you know, uh, uh, mass collective uh, 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 collusion. They're just doing it. And, 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 and that's, there's something to be said about what was done in 2013, uh, 2014 and 2015. And 2013, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I spent a whole year <clears throat> being very patient, swallowing yeah. my tongue, mm. and <laughs> teaching white people no more. I want. I want to yeah. see. It's like the stock market. I want to see returns on my dividend. You know, on my. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I'm not going to be a kinder, gentler Jonathan in 2016 either. The yeah. 2016 exactly. model is coming. The 2016 model is coming with the with the tongue lashing package. Yeah, and, uh, I've been hearing and, and, that where people are just like, "There's no more fucks to give, and nobody has any left." Like they've been used yeah. up. Patriarchy yeah. has used them up. Misogyny has used them up. Racism has right. used them up. Like they just, I'm I'm done. I don't we have any more. Well, right. we, we, I, I mean, I think I had more patience. With when Mike Brown, because I think Mike Brown and I think it actually started with Trayvon Martin, and it started tickling mm-hmm. white people in the back of their head. Is like something is not right about this. Something mm-hmm. you know is is off. And then Michael Brown. So I had the patience to try to catch them up on 400 years of oppression, and they're still rising. Now that I've given you the tools, I'm not going to hold your hand through the rest of the teaching. Now you should be able to see it as soon as it happens. No one is saying that black folks want to run willy-nilly and we're not subject to the Lord. And that's what I think a lot of white people are feeling. Right, right. They just want to be able to do what they can do and have no consequences. No. What we want is for our children, for our brothers, for our sisters to not be judged on the sidewalks. Right. Absolutely right. Do process of the Lord. In courtrooms. Mm. Right. Right. And what I that's, that's, you, that was what was so egregious about the shooting with with, uh, with Tamir Rice is that right. you know every state uh, going all the way back to the Fourteenth Amendment you know every state has to give its citizens due process of law before they take life liberty or property and this officer rolling up on the you know as a former officer there's certain things that have to be done before you decide to go with deadly force none of them were done in this situation mm. none of them exactly and this this exactly. guy rolled up on the scene and within inside of two seconds made a decision to take life without any real due process of law and um the failure at the local levels uh has been systemic forever it's been that way forever there's a federal regulation that's in place a criminal regulation that's in place mm-hmm. And we have to work on actually changing the law or making a modification to it because the intention standard that's inside of it uh, is a it's a you know it's a it's a it's a level of intention that's almost impossible to prove out of a police officer. And um, so you know this is you know that's the work that that, that we're committed to is to change the law Uh, at the state level and on state legislators legislatures we need to concentrate on changing the law. 
that allows I don't need you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't need you mimicking my stories or amplifying them. Those are great. I'm glad you're doing that. I need you mm-hmm. to use your whiteness. And that yeah. means calling your congressman, calling your mayor, saying, huh, I think I'm going to withhold my donation this year if this is not done. Right. Because you do it for everything else. Right. Now I need you to do it for us. Mm-hmm. This country club that you're building, I want to make sure that at least 30% of it is, is to pe- people of color. It can't be all white. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I'm not. I'm not funding it. I'm not. They have means that we do not have, and they need to start implementing them and using them. Yeah, you know, and to your point and Leslie about not having any fucks to give. Um, Leslie <laughs> and I talked about that before the podcast. There was a you know quote, quote unquote white put air quotes on ally having some moment on Facebook. Uh, it's kind of when in the morning. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. But so the, the the discussion you and I had was that the sort of centering around whiteness and white feelings and calling white folk like that hasn't worked at all. Like that's gotten, you know, black liberation exactly kind of like, you know, not, it hasn't succeeded in moving the moral compass of white folk. So, you know, I don't want to say like I'm all for smacking us on the nose, but, uh, fuck, why not? You know, like the, the other approach, situation, why not? It just, you know, as a, I, but me as a white person, I've, you know, I don't know what other, when I'm talking to fellow white people and I'm on Twitter and doing stuff, the, the, People ahead of me, like I look to elders, like, okay, what are other white anti-racists doing? It's almost always about, you know, you got to kind of center the white person's feelings and make them feel good. And you got to be aware of white fragility and you got to be really kind of gentle and you want to talk to them. And I I do it. I'm guilty of this. Like, okay, I see a white person fucking up. Like my reaction for the last year has been, hey, let's talk privately in DM. It's going to, you're going to (laughs) get, seriously, because you're going to get dragged. You're going to get dragged. That private conversation is, is counterproductive. I'm the, the, you know, if we've learned anything from the internet, that shaming, that public shaming of behavior, it modifies behavior. I agree. Mm-hmm. I completely yeah. agree. And I, I think the 2016 no fucks given, like, there should be, like, minus six fucks for white folks. Can we, if last year, <laughs> so, so if 2015 was the year of resilience or resistance, then does that mean 2016 is the year of no fucks? I mean, I'm just asking. <laughs> no fucks. I'm just throwing it no out there. Given. No fucks yeah. given, and I think we also have the title for the episode as well. You know, and now we can't have anyone. Yeah. Hey, I don't Everyone. know about you all, but I, you know the way that I see things moving, and less and less, and, and I'm serious. I was, <laughs> I found myself today on the phone with a federal firearms license dealer today to make sure and get all of my paperwork in order. So I can get as many bullets and ammunition and anything that I need to protect my family. Mm. Now that sounds crazy, I know. Actually, but it doesn't. Truth, but it's not true. It's not. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. It's not because we uh, uh, at the end of this if, if, at the end of this logical sequence, if 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 we continue to face somebody that says that they don't give a fuck, then. We've, we once we once we've tried everything, this place is going to unravel. And uh, because we're at the point now where it's, it's you know, I think Farrakhan said justice or else. Malcolm said it's the battle of the bullet. And we are still trying the ballot. We're still trying the ballot, damn it. We're still trying the ballot. I watched the show over the weekend, all 10 episodes of it. And I know this is hard to pull some, some inspiration from, but I, I watched Pablo Escobar's story of Narcos on Netflix. Mm, and right. every time he confronted politicians or even – uh, uh, police officers, he offered them a choice. He said, listen, you can roll with us, 
or you can roll against us. But he basically said, it's either silver or lead. Which one do you want? And Exactly. And, and, and what we have to do when we confront – politicians don't do things for the right reasons in America. Otherwise, things will be fixed. They'd be all hunkadory. Yep. Every idea right. that we come with, they would just instantaneously fix it. But if you go to a politician and you say, listen, I have come up with a formula, a secret formula, and we know it works because I've got somebody that I have raised from the dead. I've got a formula that raises people from the dead and heals the sick. The very first words out of a politician's mouth will be, well, what about my funeral home owners? They're going to be upset with me. Mm. And my doctors, that vote, I'm going to lose that vote. So everything right. in America is a political process. Everything in America. So with these leaders, we have to come with them. We have to come to them literally with a political gun in our hand and put it to their head and say, you are either for transparency and accountability, you are either for equal justice under the law, or we're going to pull this trigger and blast you right out of office. And, and that's, that's, where, you know, exactly. that's where we're going. And, and until we get a set of le elected leaders on local levels, on state levels, and eventually at the federal level that actually care about this issue, uh, we're not really going to see any substantive change in, in, in the law and then the practices and procedures of law enforcement agencies. I mean, I think we saw that not to not to put uh, Bill Cosby into the convo because I don't really want to talk about that. But I think that mm. that situation and the fact that he was arrested yesterday is a clear illustration of that. I mean, the new district attorney in Montgomery County hasn't even taken office yet, but he ran on a platform of the, the previous um, district attorney did not prosecute Bill Cosby 10 years ago, even though there was sufficient evidence to. And, and this man lost his job. And now this new DA is having to you know, follow up and follow through with the things that he promised when he went when right. he won the election. That's so, right. um, it's, right. so it's, you it's, see the process does work when they want when 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 that push when that political pressure is put. We just have not, and I think if we have any tuning up to do over the next year, it is this: we need to take our numbers, we need to take our organizations, and we need to galvanize them, and we need to close ranks, and then we need to start picking areas and cities that we can go into and just literally politically off people that are not accountability oriented period and exactly. let that let let that you know the messages that i'm hearing out of bernie sanders and elizabeth warren i'm like man good grief you know finally somebody is actually saying it you know on the national on the national platform mm -hmm. but that's the exact same type of messaging that we need to see out of our local elected leaders out of our local so so why you don't really hear it out of the local boys is because the secret is the police unions control your local politics more than you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm um, speaking of Bernie Sanders. One of my highlights from the year was certainly the Netroots Nation Black Lives Matter protest um, of uh, O'Malley and Bernie Sanders um, talks there. What? How did you guys see that playing out? What were your thoughts? I think it was a really interesting moment for a lot of reasons. One, it was the first in injection of the um, movement and political uh, forces in a really super public and very national way and um, I thought it really showed a lot of ally colors as well because people were so quick to question the actions of these black women and I mean with that when I say black women because that's all that was there doing this work um, in in the moment and after the fact so I'm interested to hear what all of your thoughts were when it happened and then you know the fallout as well. Uh, Kamisi I'm going to start with you because I know you saw that happening too yeah, um, I was very, I was very proud of him, of course, and I think that that's what we have to do. We have to disrupt 
their daily lives. Because until it affects them, they don't care. They don't see it. And I had a white ally who was very, I mean, you know, I hate that word ally. But her heart, I, I think, is in the right place. And she was very kind of critical with her. And I got with her in a PM. And I was like, look, you are missing the point. Mm. There's, a t- there's not a time, that this is urgent. Every time, every place is the time and place for this. Because mm. we have to become part of the national conversation. It has to be part of every aspect of this conversation we are having. Nationally, locally, everywhere. Yeah. Because by picking and choosing where we discuss this, people can turn, turn it off. If you turn it into the enemies and you don't expect to hear Black Lives Matter, you, you're forced to hear it if it's there, if it's the Tonys, mm-hmm. if it's a political protest, if it's any case, if we bring it up, it becomes normalized. But that's what we have to do. We have to make black issues normalized. They have to stop being black issues. They have to be American issues. So that's what they are. Mm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to read a quick uh, excerpt from an article in The Nation by Danny McLean about the protest. She says, but Black Lives Matter organizers aren't just sending a message to party operatives. They're also speaking to those of us who, during pre-Obama election cycles, sold ourselves short. We bought into the idea that we simply needed to amplify the existing progressive message in order to win, no matter how much it ignored our lived experiences. And to <coughs> me, that is at the heart of this this critical um, injunction and, and disruption at Netroots. And these women, when I, I mean, I know quite a few of them personally. And when I tell you that they felt uh, the heat after this action, it, it was, it was beyond uh, the attacks yeah. personally on them, uh, on their organizations that supported them in this action. And it's interesting to watch just a mere six months later, it become such a normal thing, interruption at political um, engagement and political rallies and political discourse. It's, yeah. you know, when you see a trailblazing um, occur, it's, it's rarity in a lifetime to see that. And this movement has provided so many moments like that. This was definitely one of those. Um uh, Ricky, what were your thoughts on that Netroots um, disruption, which happened like while we were in Cleveland, so or yeah. just before Cleveland or the day yeah. before Cleveland? Yeah, um, it was it was eye opening. Um, it was definitely eye opening in the sense that it showed me and it puts and it put some reasonable conversation in my head as to whether or not Bernie Sanders was ready to be president because mm. he just looked like a bad fucking politician. Mm. Like, I'm sorry. I'm glad that he supports, our, you know, that, yeah. that he shows supports and that he voices supports for our causes. But I don't know that he, that put into question as to whether or not when he gets in office, if he's capable of doing it. Because you can't even handle, you can't even handle a crowd of people. You couldn't just be like, you know what? Nope. They're right. And we, and while we have this discussion about immigration, we also need to include black people because guess what? Immigration affects black people. And not frame exactly. this shit with economic okay. message, or right. say, or even simply just say, look, this is how I look at, at as my part of the solution, and this is what I can bring to the table. I can bring this to the table as far as economic justice, and that's what I'm. I'm an economic guy, and I understand that there are other there are other options, and there are other means in which we have to um, to to fix the issue in addition to that, and I'm willing to listen. So. Bam. Oh my God, you look like a fucking hero to everybody. Nobody's in, oh, he's kowtowing to those black people. Do you really right. want people's votes anyway? Because you're going to have to be held accountable to them. Right. 
as if kowtowing to black people is such a terrible thing. Right, <laughs> right. Because expecting their vote and demanding it is better. That's that because those are right. the two alternatives in this scenario, which is that y'all just exactly. need to come with us because we're better than those dish- douchebags over there. Like, nah, mm-hmm. let's roll no, that buddy. back a bit and and make you actually, as Elon says all the time, earn this damn vote because it's getting ridiculous it's, at this point. It is. Yeah, and it's it is. It is. It did bring to it did bring to like that conversation, and I've seen a lot. I mean, it's still not quite enough in my opinion, but I've seen a lot of liberals um, a lot more receptive since that's happened, even though they were fucking, oh, I can't, I don't understand while they were, all right, well, shut the fuck up and listen, and you might understand. Yeah. Exactly. I thought why the massage and noir had exposed. Why didn't they go and disrupt the Trump rally? Yeah. Why would I go to a Klan and expect sympathy? Mm. I don't understand that, yeah. that thinking. Well, and, I'm going to go to the person who's going to do the best for me. And it happened, and they were silent. Mm-hmm. Those same liberals. Well, and you know the uh, bring it all full circle. I think uh, Jay, you said that that uh, shaming is the thing that works. Um, so from that incident, Netroots uh, came Rodimus uh, Prime, black guy who tips Bernie so black, right? Because people, were, their rebuttal was, "He's the candidate that's the best for you. Why are you black people so upset?" Like the you know that phrase, the Overton window of like discussion, what's uh, uh, acceptable at that time, highly acceptable for a lot of quote unquote progressive white people was to question that tactic openly and to not see that as a you know anti-black uh you know uh element of their behavior and i think that's changed to some degree i think people you know i hope a lot more quote-unquote progressive white people aren't questioning that tactic well i think that the and the the way it was it was real massage noir in the like you know these girls don't know what they're doing and they don't even understand how anything works as if as you mentioned earlier drew they hadn't considered every fucking possibility of what was going to happen when they went out there you know it's so um embedded to assume that uh these aren't amazingly intelligent super smart well educated well versed um, and well rehearsed uh, women that took took women. the stage that day. So it's it's really crazy. And it was disingenuous to even say like, oh well, he's the better candidate because <laughs> all right, let's say you do believe that. I I'm, I believe that he's the best candidate given the current circumstances, but he's still not very good. That says lots. Like no, like if you couldn't take it to that point, then you had no business telling somebody was best in him for them like mm. even get to the point where wow you know what he is the best candidate and it, he's still he's still fucking up mm. and wow, they don't see the, pa- the patronizing aspect of mm. telling me who is best for me right, right. If i can't come to the conclusion on my own right uh-huh. I, 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 uh, when i get 95s and 97s and a's in school you better believe i worked so much harder than the other than person than the other person. And it's not, it's it's all because I'm black. It's all because I'm a woman. Mm. So when I say something, trust and believe, I've done my research. (laughs) So so you can doubt me and tell me you know what's better for me than what I know for myself, it's condescending. And you ought to see how, how, I mean, how pervasive that mentality is in a lot of, in a lot of areas of stuff that we do. People are always questioning us and, 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 you know, as if they've got some magical book that tells us how to be successful as black people. <laughs> you know, exactly. and uh, you know, I'm, I, I run a, a, an organization that I know for a fact that if I just simply replace the leadership with a white person, 
it'll it'll fly off the the same thing with those the the, the young ladies who did what what they did. Their methodology was effective, and I'm gonna say, it, Rick, you follow me all the time. You know, when 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 it happened, when when they did what they did, I was one of those. Uh, knee-jerk reaction, people are like, oh, man, look at him, get a grief. You know, I didn't say anything really out in the open. But, right. but, but I was doing true to my mental conditioning of, you know, the exact same thing that, that, that gets done to me. Oh, look at him, he just won't shut up. He's an angry black man. Not really, uh-huh. not really taking into consideration what they were doing really had a place and also had such an effect, you know, when I got past it and I analyzed it, you know, when I say got past it, when I really came back and I looked at it and did my my close look at it, you know, I equated what the sisters did to um, somebody coming into an emergency room with a gunshot wound. They're not going to come in there all calm and civil and say, hey, my friend over here has a gunshot wound. They're going to run in there. Blood's going to be splurting everywhere. Blood's going to get on the nurse. The doctor's going to run out. The doctor's going to say, okay, let's get him into the ER, blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's get them into the operating room, whatever, whatever, whatever. The, the training that we've had in this country, and, and, I, and I say this with all sincerity because we have to not have patience, but we need to really take into consideration where we're at as a people. Uh, you know, we weren't there. A lot of us weren't there. And I'm talking about educated people. I'm talking about people who, quote, unquote, or were awoke or, you know, are awoke. But... They weren't there. They were like, oh, man, look at them. They can't be da-da-da-da-da. And when you really, really look at it, those sisters um, put him, they did They did exactly where I'm talking about doing right now. Look, it's either the ballad or the bullet. What you want, Bernie? And Exactly. You, and he tuned, he tuned the hell up. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think part of my frustration back then was, because I was one of the people, I didn't say, why don't you go do that to, 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 uh, to Donald Trump? That's a waste of damn time. My my thing was, man, we need to be breaking those ropes and barriers that Hillary Clinton has around her, and you know the, the things that she was doing along that time period. I wanted to see it equally, you know. When when we finally did see the confrontation or the conference with Hillary Clinton, it was so controlled and so, you know, whatever. I, I was like, so, man, I don't, so you know. Handled. It but was I, so but handled. I, I didn't like that, man. Yeah, but I think you know? that it showed, too, the type of candidate that she is. Like, to me, yeah, it was absolutely. very telling that she didn't even have a real, you know, interaction with, with folks on it. And she, you know, she's had subsequent meetings, but it was controlled and it wasn't in a protest. Um, and, that, yeah, I that, mean, that, and, that's, that's to, that's to uh, Ricky's point is yeah. that literally Bernie Sanders isn't a, um, he wasn't, a, he's not a good political candidate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Otherwise, he'd have had his ropes up, he'd have had his boys out, and nobody would have got within fifty feet of that stage or platform. But but he's not a good he's not a good quote unquote political candidate. But he's a good presidential candidate in that we need somebody who's going to trumpet our cause and actually do something. If it wasn't Bernie Sanders, I would have loved for it to have been Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth and, Warren, yes, yeah, you know, but. Warren. You know, this, this this garbage that we're facing here, and when I say garbage, what the DNC and mainstream media has done is basically they've done a sophisticated conditioning job of, 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 of forcing America to choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hmm. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's, what, 
that's where we're at. It's, 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 so, I mean, you hear me say this right now. I'm not going to say it on the radio. I told a friend of mine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you're put in a situation where you got to choose between, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't give a fuck about you and somebody who really doesn't give a fuck about you? Exactly. exactly. What do you choose? What do you choose? I'm going with the one who really doesn't give a fuck about me. Because I know that I'm at the max tilt as far as the foolishness is concerned. I'm always expecting some bad stuff. You know, in the, in the 90s, when we were, and I was, a, I was a Clinton supporter. He was blowing the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall uh -huh. show. He was talking about he didn't inhale, and he was laughing and hee-hawing and giggling. And this motherfucker wrote policy that was well-advised about what kind of effects it would have on the black community. And then... This year, I think it was 2015, he was like, you know, listen, I'm sorry I wrote some policies that, you know, I really should have given it some better thought. Are you kidding me? You, <laughs> you, you know, you don't sit around and write these policies. Let me just sign off on that. You've got social, uh, you've got lawyers and you've got uh, uh, a sociologist who sit around and say, you know, Mr. President, this is what could happen. And he wrote the damn things anyway, you know. Exactly. Uh, and implemented So, them. you know. And if we're talking about, if we're talking about, you know, I hate the fact, I, you know, for, with Bill Cosby on TV, I want to, yes, I want to see Bill Cosby on TV for what he's done for women, okay? But I also would like to see Bill Clinton on TV for what he's done for women. All right. Well, yeah. we're trying to keep things on the focus for the the year's uh, recap. So we'll, I want to get people's thoughts about Concerned Student 1950 and Absurdist Words. I'm going to start with you. For those who don't know, it was an uprising started at uh, University of uh, Mizzou. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good old Mizzou. Um, in reaction to uh, their their president uh, not taking the concerns of black students seriously and really set off a chain reaction of nationwide protests on college campuses, large, small, Ivy League, public, uh, all, all over the place in terms of their um, uh, anti-blackness inherent in the um, culture that they have cultivated on ca college campuses. So uh, absurdist words, what were your thoughts about all that? That's our model. Mm. <laughs> well, those I think that it, Go ahead, Absurdist Words. Oh, no, I was, I was just saying, I, I think that it, it was a really powerful moment um, because I think a lot of times, uh, especially the, you know, kids in college, not even just, not even counting the black, you know, the black kids in college, the kids in college are often dismissed as just sort of, you know, tagging on to whatever um, and just sort of, you know, being activists for the sake of activism. And sure, that's true for some, and some were experimenting with their beliefs and that sort of thing. But this was really uh, a situation of watching people who were very focused, who knew what their, you know, what their point was, and says, you know, listen, this is not okay. And I think mm -hmm. that that is something that that is, um, you know, is, is something that doesn't really happen as much. I, mean, I think, you know, but we 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 realize that there are black people that are, you know, that are in these white spaces. But we often don't realize what that means because we sort of think, you know, there's, I think there's a presumption a lot of the time that, you know, some of the most, you know, the more horrible stuff, the most, you know, obvious stuff um, are things that don't happen anymore. But, you know, as we can see, you know, colleges, you know, when that came out, you started seeing stuff at colleges all over the place, you know, exactly. parties, hanging nooses, you know, all sorts of things. And that's on top of the regular systematic uh, racism that's happened. So, like, so watching, um, you know, the concerned student movement, that was incredible. 
of not just, um, you know, just sort of saying, hey, we're just going to, you know, sort of make noise for the sake of, of making noise, but demanding um, public attention, demanding that people say, hey, listen, we are actually real people. We are intelligent people. We are in college for a reason. I mean, these are... It's funny because I look at people all the time. They're talking about, you know, hey, black people, go get an education. These are those people. Like, these right. are the people who made it into Amen. college who are, who are exactly what you were saying that, you know, they wanted to do. You, you told them to go to college. They went to college, and people gave them shit for it. And so, exactly. you know, you have this situation where, you know, we get it coming and going, um, you know, but it was a great <laughs> moment to watch these kids stand up and say, you know, we're not doing this anymore. And I think that that's, you know, just, exactly. exactly. Like looking forward to, you know, to 2016, I think one of the things that's going to be different, and I think one of the things that's been triggered by all of this, is that we've really gotten to the point where society has said, we, we've uncovered racism again. I feel like it's not that, you know, we talked before about, you know, whether or not the civil leaders dropped, you know, dropped the ball. And I don't think that that's what happened. I think that things got a lot better after the first civil rights movement and right. people enjoyed that. And people were like, wow, this is great. We've got some newfound freedom. We've got some newfound space and, 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 and fell into a false sense of security. And, exactly. you know, that allowed us to start talking about post-racial America. And really what's happening now is people are drawing into contrast that, you know what, this stuff is still here. These things mm -hmm. never went away. This stuff is still here. And looking at Trump, looking at, um, you know, literally, you know, police department after police department saying it's legal to kill you. I think that, you know, and realizing that the public is not freaking out in the way they should be when the police mm -hmm. department literally says it's legal mm -hmm. to kill black kids. So right. I think that at this point, you know, we're at this point of, you know, everybody's got their cards on the table now. And I think we're, we're not starting from a point where we're not, we're wondering what's in people's hands. I think that yeah, everybody's, you know, laid their cards out and, and, and lines have been drawn. So I think that, you know, the, the young people who are, um, you know, who are in college right now, they're seeing that and that's where they're, that's their, where they're launching from. And they're they, launching and they're from We Can their, See You Clearly. Yeah, and I think and we, they're using their power. Yeah, and I think we saw a ramp up to it too. Like we saw yeah. the frat um, house had the, the song with the N-word in it. We saw a bunch of other instances on college campuses that were elevated to the national consciousness prior to um, the protests at Mizzou. And then we saw, because of, I think that what we saw was black students really pushing back on this narrative that they they were lucky to be there and they should be thankful that they even are getting an education because a lot of this narrative exactly. is is built into you know the thankfulness that black people need to have for whatever's given to them with no oh, consideration yeah. for how it affects them so we're for me we're to be so grateful so grateful and, and so, so to yeah, me right. that's, that's so grateful that you're quiet and that's the yeah. narrative so you hear oh yeah. the, these whiny students what are they complaining about when what they're complaining about is a system that's set up to make them fail and then blame them for failing that's what we're talking about so yeah. it's, it's very Hello. it's very powerful what those students did um you know in missouri and beyond just coming together and really um using collective voice in that way there's there's a new coalition that's been built from that they're continuing to build together it's really um amazing amazing organizing work um exactly. and i think and I that the, the athletes that 
you know, refused to play. Yeah, that absolutely. Was All of that. All of that. Because you hit, you hit the colleges in their pockets. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's tripe and it sounds, you know, cliche. But money talks. Bullshit walks. If a lot of these student athletes decide right. no more. No right. more. Until you, sh- until you do right by me, I will not run a yard. I will not shoot a basket. I will not. Whatever they're in college for. But they decide until this campus, if to my liking, I'm not playing, I bet you we will see a lot more change a lot quicker. Yeah, we did see change. Especially in sports, because in sports, you've got this, it's literally this, you know, this huge bastion of commodification of black bodies. That's what college sports is for the, you know, for the large mm-hmm. part. And so yes. you've got this situation where these, you know, these young men who are, you know, who are being, you know, their, their bodies are the, 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 the product. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're realizing that that gives them power, that their demand gives them power. So, exactly. you know, when they've built this structure around them, they're saying, oh, wait a second, we're not just being sold. We're the ones who have the power to play or not. You've built, you know, this entire structure around us. Now we're going to use it. And I think that, that scared the shit out of a lot of people. Well, and you saw that the reaction. Uh... Death. It scared them so much that they made legislation. Exactly. You saw how they, they made that legislation? Yeah. Weeks. Immediately. It was the first Are thing they did. It was the first thing they did. Yeah. They drafted it right away. They, nobody ever takes into the, into the account in, the, in their calculations that, you know, the, the, the people who we're really controlling will just say, fuck it, we're not going to be controlled anymore. They never took that into, into any kind of calculations. And I just think that that's a model that was created that, that you know, it's been right. done before in the past, but this is so powerful now in our generation, man. If, 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 if that becomes, you know, a practice that we see all over the nation, uh, you know, some things will change really quick because it's going to hit them right where, you know, right where uh, it's necessary to hit them in the pocket, you know. Exactly. Yeah, Drew, did you and have they, a, I'm, I, That's what I was saying when I first said that we're stepping into our power. Because mm-hmm. no one told those athletes to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the local leaders and stuff. But you have to realize your worth. Mm-hmm. And I think we are now realizing our worth. What we, what we give this country, and we give it a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. America would not be great if it wasn't for people of color. Right. Point blank period. Absolutely. Yeah. So now me using this value you want to put on me, are you saying I'm worth $400 million when I come out of college and I'm bringing this much money to the college? How about if I stop bringing this money to this college? Hmm. Now what are you going to do? Yeah. So for me, another big uh, moment from the year was Trans Liberation Tuesday and the uh, Black Trans Lives Matter um, day of action that occurred. I I saw this year for me personally as one where I really was um, for the first time able to truly connect to the unique and different struggle of black trans men and women. And I thought that that day was really beautiful to see um, so many cities lift up their trans um uh, trans black folks and really support them in, in what has become, you know, the, I should say, s- silent uh, among us, which is those that are truly the marginalized of the marginalized uh, and who are brutally um, attacked and killed with literally no response from even our own communities when it happens. And I I thought that it was a really powerful moment. I think that there's not even 
it's not even close to where it needs to be and so much more needs to be done. But for me, that was a big uh, moment this year to really confront um, transphobia and um, homophobia in our movement yeah. spaces in a really powerful way. And it, and to me, like it really put a lot of people on blast. Like I was looking at my side. I was so strong watching people that I know would be retweeting and sharing and, and, and being so vocal about all these other um, actions and hashtags and silence when it came to black trans um, liberation day. So that was a big one for me. Drew, what were your thoughts on that? On Transliberation Day? Yes. Uh, you know, for me personally, and, and uh, maybe I'm, am I the oldest person here? I might be. Maybe. Um, mm-hmm. That, that, the, the <laughs> well, for me, the, the varying intersections of, of different forms of oppression and the similarities between them, uh, sort of the, you know, intersectionality, uh, which I think has almost been a theme, uh, or at least I would say a tenant of the current quote unquote movement. Um, it, it's, it's been a, a, a work for me. And, uh, I think I've, I've, personally worked on uh, understanding uh, in trans individuals and uh, their struggles that relates to uh, oppressions. Um, so it's been uh, really important to me. And I've, I've met, uh, I have a few individuals in my life on Twitter and uh, in, real, in real life that I'm in relationship with. Uh, and I've had, uh, you know, very uh, personal and private and deep conversations uh, about. Uh, so it's been, uh, for me, uh, a lot of growth. Uh, and I've, I've really appreciated uh, those individuals. Uh, and I'm aware of uh, the 20 plus trans women of color that have been killed this year alone. Uh, yeah. uh, that, you know, it's, it's at their uh, cost that, that I'm uh, slowly learning more and more and more. Yeah. And to go back to mo- the movement for black lives convening real quick, and I'll have Ricky speak on this um, in a second. Cause I actually wasn't there when it happened, but um, you know, as, as intentional as the space we tried to create was we were lacking um, with regard to accommodation and, and consideration for um, the trans uh, folks that were in attendance. And the second day of the conference, uh, we, we gave the floor to them at the opening assembly of the day to address the entire convening and discuss what their needs were and creating spaces for them. And um, for me, that was a really powerful moment during the convening as well. This idea of stopping what we were doing to address something that was harming folks right now. Um, and, and, exactly. and that was part of the spirit of creating this space. Ricky, what, what was that like when that happened um, in the auditorium? Maybe you can tell us a little bit. Um, I wasn't actually there for that. Either, oh, I thought but, you were. But I gathered from people. Um, it was it was bold. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like when you when they brought it up, it's like, oh yeah, shit. All right, we we really need to fix this. Like, it, there was no uh, there for the for the most part, there was no pushback against it, right? Because it was pretty fucking, you know, it was pretty obvious, and it's like, wow, you know, let's just make amends to this, let's fix this, and and uh, move forward, right? That is a that is about like that to me represented so much of what should happen in a society hmm. and what doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, because we don't we're all conditioned we're all born with the same fucking conditioning. Black people are told that black people are worthless just as much as white people are. Otherwise the system wouldn't work. And so, you know, we in the same sentence, trans people are, are shown to be, you know, less worth or less human than than cis people and you bring something they brought something to the table it was addressed and we were able to grow and everybody was able to grow nobody was fucking lacking if you were that fucking scared of being in the bathroom with a trans person oh the fuck well you don't need to be here 
Right. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Then hold it. <laughs> you know, cause, I mean, I don't understand this, this fear of being in the bathroom with the trans person. They're in there to do the same thing you're in there to do. Go to the bathroom, wash your hands and leave. <laughs> yeah, like what? what? What's the big deal? Yeah, it's 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 irrational, quite frankly. Um, so uh, yeah, so th- I thought that was a big moment. Um, we're heading into the last fifteen minutes of the show, so I wanted to maybe just go around. Um, Absurdus word. Did you have another highlight that we had mentioned yet? Um, yeah, so uh, another one of my one of my favorite highlights actually was was a hashtag, and um, that was the the Stay Mad Abby hashtag. <laughs> I was going to mention which I, yeah. which I I loved. <laughs> um, yeah. Because especially as a black man who went to an Ivy League, um, you know, it was, it touched on a lot of, a lot of points for me. Um, you know, it really was, was good and it was sort of cathartic to, you know, to sort of express, um, you know, a level of, of resistance and, and, and disdain for this notion that um, any black person who goes to college is doing so at the expense of a white person's space. Mm. Um, and that presumption that white people belong at college, but that if you are black, then you are, you know, you're being allowed something. Um, right. And not only that you're being allowed something, but you're being allowed something that you don't actually deserve. Right. Even if you right. earned it, even if you are better, you know, the idea is that a, a, a really qualified black person is, is not as deserving of that space as an underqualified white person. And so, um, you know, it was, it was, for me, it was an, uh, an example, you know, I had done a sort of a really long thread about it, um, but it was just about this sort of idea that, you know, black people go through life stealing spaces from white people um, and right. how, how absurd that concept is, but it, it underlies all the concepts of black success. Mm. So it's a way of saying that, you know, if you're not successful, why aren't you successful? But then if you are successful, you didn't earn it. And, you know, and it should have been somebody else. And I think that's also sort of indicative of, you know, the sort of the growing fear of white people of losing control um, and the idea that, um, you know, privilege isn't, you know, privilege is something that they deserve and that anybody encroaching on that, you know, is illegitimate. Um, And so the idea that, you know, this this has gotten to the Supreme Court is crazy. Um, But, you know, it's really an important concept of, of, you know, how black people are, are being looked at, you know, uh, you know, again, just even they tied back into, you know, in, back into the Mizzou thing. You know, just the idea that, um, you know, if you're there, it's okay to, you know, to disparage you. It's okay to terrorize you, whatever, because really you're there illegitimately, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you did. Exactly. You, mm. you should take whatever that we give you because you don't deserve to be here anyway. Right. Yeah, um, I was going to mention the state mad Abby, so that's a good one. Maybe um, for this last, we can just talk about the hashtags that we appreciated this year. Uh, Drew, did you have any uh, movement hashtags that were, you know, really? You know, and you're saying hashtag. Uh, I guess I was trying to think of like what uh, be a highlight that wasn't mentioned. And I think um, we're talking at some point. Uh, you and I have talked before that uh, I think that Dre said. Uh, Ferguson gave people the right to protest. The permission. Uh, the permission. Mm. Uh, I feel like 2015 gave, I mean, I shouldn't say gave, but it, it's appeared uh, sort of from the outside that black folk were really uh, very comfortable in their blackness. Mm. You know, unapologetically black and just sort of there were various hashtags, I think uh, flexing my melanin or there's a couple other ones. There's the whole blackout uh, as, a, as a concept yeah, across Tumblr day. and Twitter. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think 2015 yeah. felt 
um, again, just anecdotally on the outside as an observer, um, it, it, se- it seemed there were a lot more black people more comfortable um, being unapologetically black. And I really like that. I think that was beautiful. Yeah. I thought, I thought black Twitter was really came into its own in 2015, although, you know, uh, racists are quick to, to jump on hashtags. We create and things like that, but it was really used to great um, alacrity with regard to clapbacks on various folks, uh, whether it was Melanin on fleek or black girl magic or Oscar. So white was a really great one. I, I love just being like, listen, this, yeah. y'all want to talk, then let's fucking talk. Let's that talk was, about- that was the the atmosphere I think that we saw a lot. Whether it was Ask Rachel, oh Lord, I love that hashtag. Oh, that was Lord. like my favorite. Um, the jokes just didn't stop. And then of course more serious ones like Say Her Name was huge. Um, where we saw you know bringing uh, you know again marginalized of portion of the marginalized um, community to the forefront. So all of that stuff was really cool. Ricky, how about you? Anything we haven't covered yet that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Um, honestly. I think the most the most telling thing about the movement isn't any of the actions that have happened, mm. but the like on the outside and but what, what how it's changed everyone, how it's changed not just the conversation, but it's changed ourselves. Yeah, I mean that that kind of goes into what you know Drew was talking about as far as being unapologetically black, but being being like reminded being reminded of your own humanity mm. and being reminded of the humanity of others and how that that relates to you like has been like amazing mm. uh, just the, yeah. the personal growth that it's helped spur in myself like oh my like I, I'll be honest eh, about three years ago I was a terrible fucking person terrible <laughs> oh my god on <laughs> 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 the planet like <laughs> Like, and it's, I say that in jest now because it's, you know, it's amazing to say how, like, to see how far I've come. Um, and I, and I, I, yeah, and I can't, I can't separate it from this movement. Mm. It's it's been a part of this movement. Yeah. Is not just, you know, even before the, the movement itself really got going with, with August, August 9th, but. Like before that, I was running AUA, and I I said before I was like, you know, what? I'm not gonna run away from the fact that I'm black. I may not talk about it on every episode. We may just cover policy, but I'm not running away from the fact that I'm black. I don't feel like I should have to. And you know, it that happening just cemented it. It was like, okay, yeah, this is kind of you know, you're not alone in this. You're not alone right. in not, not wanting to fucking hide your blackness anymore. Exactly. Like, I used to hate to have to tell people I was from Compton. Like, they'd be like, oh, where are you from? Especially, especially when I was in the Navy. Oh, where are you from? Uh, L.A. What part? Right. Fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> to see that look That's in true. people's faces, like, oh, where it's like part scary, part pity, part like, what the fuck, part how are you here, part why are you here? Mm. You know, if you can read, people read each other's facial expressions. It's you know, we commute. That's that's a large part of our communication. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to deal with that shit. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, how about you? Anything we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure got mentioned in the in the convo? Uh, no, I like what Ricky just said. I mean, it's it's for for me. I, I'm I turned forty three in in August, and uh, this has been a wonderful journey. 
in terms of how it's opened me up to think differently. Um, I, I grew up in Key West, Florida, a very diverse, very open uh, community. And um, I always say I, I moved from Key West when I was 18 years old to Georgia. And um, growing up in Key West, I probably had a different experience than Ricky. I didn't know I was black until I got to Georgia. And Georgia has a state-sponsored refresher course, if you forget. Hmm. Um, wow. And, and, and my awakening at that moment wasn't even the real awakening. That was just a partial awakening. But um, the movement has helped me understand that one thing that Rick just said, I'm not alone. There are other marginalized people. There are other marginalized groups, even yeah. inside of our culture. The, the transgender uh, uh, group and the transgender folks are, are, are marginalized even more so than, 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 than black folks are. And so we, it's, it's opened me up. This, this, this movement has opened me up and helped me see things from other perspectives that I may not have ever considered had I not been uh, involved with this and, and been part of this journey. I, I started off just thinking about just police misconduct and uh, police misconduct to me is a symptom of an overarching uh, system that basically marginalizes anybody that doesn't fit this sort of very narrow scope of quote-unquote what America is or what America is supposed to be or what's acceptable to, to white people. And um, over the last year, uh, I, I'm very thankful to be, you know, acknowledged or even be a part of this work to see the different transitions that people are making and the movements that we're making with inside the country. So awesome. I'm looking forward to 2016. It, it, it causes me to grow. Thank so. you. Thanks for that. Yeah. Comicia, turn it to you. What 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 did you want to highlight that we maybe haven't covered yet? I I mean I know I came a little late. Um I remember what definitely made me proud and I I, I should slap myself because I can't remember her name right now. But the district attorney from Baltimore. Oh uh, yeah, we did talk about that. that. Yep. Marilyn Mosby. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. Standing up at that podium yeah. and just saying, they're gonna be convicted. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, any questions that was uh, being tossed to deflect it, she was not, she didn't rise to the debate. She was like, that's not my problem. My problem is this, this, this what happened and what they did was illegal. And I'm going to try them for that. That brought me a joy. And, you know, maybe it's the black girl magic. Mm. You know, maybe because I grew up West Indian, even though I was born here, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm 46 years old. Big up and Brooklyn. But, but, but. Yeah, Brooklyn. True. Where's your sound effects? <laughs> but my grandmother you was. Listen. She was very, she, you know, because where she comes from, the prime minister and the janitor are both black. Mm. So it's all a matter of education. So she mm-hmm. never put into us, you are less than. She never fell for this, you know, she taught us, don't fall for this foolishness that because you're black, you can't do what other people did. And I've always been grateful for her her for that mm. and this year i've seen other people stepping into that mm. realizing black is not black is not a hindrance it's just who you are it's what you are we're not a monolith there's many ways to black mm-hmm. but no matter what your blackness is valid mm. you are valid you're just as good as everybody else and i'm, and I'm seeing that to me american blacks didn't have that all the time just to me. Mm. 
And so this year, they, they, it seems like they finally got the memo. Mm. Yeah. Man, I'm so glad you said that. We are black and we, there's nothing wrong with us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like chitlins or like whatever. That doesn't make me less than. Right. I'm Absolutely. forever grateful to her for, for giving me that lesson so young mm. and so often. And to see other people step back like, again, I think power is one of my favorite words. Step into their power mm. and to realize I'm enough. And what I, what I believe and what, I, what, I, what goes against me and what I stand up for is valid. And I'm going to fight for it. That's what I, I love from this year. And I hope it continues and I hope it groundswells and takes over the world. Excellent. Um, I'd like to, first of all, thank all of you for being here. Really appreciate it uh, coming to talk with us. And I want to give a special thank you to Ricky for joining me this past year, talking about so many topics. Actually, was just going through our old shows and we've talked about intersectionality. We talked about Selma. We talked about safety at actions. We talked about MLK. We talked about um, hashtag hangover. We talked with an entire episode with clergy about what they are, should be doing in, in this movement. We, t- we talked about the sociology of white supremacy we talked about the hidden roots and um deep roots and hidden effects of white supremacy we Mm -hmm. talked all about um the the feminine power within the movement we talked about not being a monolith we talked about global anti-blackness we talked about uh, momia we talked about uh, rep- being represented in our culture, in our arts. We talked about the Baltimore uprising. We talked about white people. We talked about um, the economics of supremacy. We talked about the auction block stare with Junior Birchall, who wasn't able to be here today, but that was an amazing episode. We talked about healing and accountability in the movement. We talked about tone policing. We talked about police reform versus abolition with Jonathan. And we talked about black girls mattering. And I am so proud of the work that we did this year, Ricky. And I can't thank you enough for being with me to just have a platform to even discuss these, you know, nuanced and complex issues that we face as we, we seek black liberation um, and, and, and freedom for all. So I appreciate you so very, very much. Um, and I love you. And I hope you have an awesome um new year and i can't wait to make some more great podcast memories with you next year and uh, i would like to just let everybody know you can find ricky occasionally on face occasionally on twitter he's not there very much but you can go to at auadot org on facebook you can find him almost all the time at aua movement and you can also find um their website auamovement.org where you can access all sorts of things including um both of his other podcasts and you can also download the aua movement app in the uh on any android device and also in the google play store um uh drew why don't you let everyone know where they can find you uh i only do the twitters that's very white guy Awesome. Um, Comicia, where can folks get in touch with you and listen to all the awesome stuff you have to share with the world? Um, just Facebook, Comicia Umstead. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Comicia U, in both places, but that, that's a little too advanced for me. I got to catch up on that. That's my goal for next year. Oh, I love that goal. That's good. Come to the dark side. Uh, absurdist yeah. words. I know it's absurdist words, but tell everybody all the different platforms that you're at and everything. So you can find me at Absurdist Words on Twitter. Um, I also um, have a blog at absurdistwords.tumblr.com um, and have been just recently uh, reaching out on Medium, so you can find me there as well. 
Awesome. I love medium. Um, Jonathan, tell everyone where they can get in touch with you and, and AAPB as well. Uh, you can find us online at uh, NAAPB.org. We have a, a holder page. The website's being developed. Uh, we have a Facebook group, um, NAAPB, and then we also have a Facebook uh, page, uh, facebook.com forward slash NAAPB. And uh, you can find me most of the time on Facebook. Um, and, and we also have a podcast that we're doing. Uh, it's supposed to be monthly, but it's ended up being bi-monthly. Where it's Justice Chats where we talk about uh, comprehensive criminal justice reform and the issues and the, the latest things that are that are involved with that uh, that process. Awesome. Um, you can find this show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response Network. Or you can go to our website, fergusonresponse.org. And um, if you're looking for a way to give back to many activists and organizers, you can go to fergusonresponseholidayguide.com and you'll find lots of links to both apparel you can purchase as gifts and also links to directly donate to many uh, amazing organizers and activists around the country. If you're looking for actions in your area, you can go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com where you can also add your own um, actions as well. And you can find me on Twitter at Leslie Mack. That's M-A-C. And Ricky, I'll leave you with the floor for the final thoughts of the year. Um, just keep this shit going. This, <laughs> this has been amazing this year. I mean, it's been tough. It's been trying. I mean, just listening to the amount of topics that we've covered. I don't know how the fuck we got through this year without, like, <laughs> breaking down in tears. Like, fuck this shit. No, <laughs> Like, I just, you know, like, but it's, it's a testament to the strength. Like, like I always say that black people, and I mean, and the very least of us, or the very most persecuted, the most persecuted of us, are a testament to the will of the human soul. And it's, let's keep it going. Let's Let's show humanity, let's remind humanity just how how amazing human beings can be Mm. on that. That's a perfect note to end on. So happy new year to everyone out there. And we will see you in the new year with the Ferguson response network podcast. Thanks for joining us. All right.